we've started looking at the letter of Jesus Christ to the church at Philadelphia, one of the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So let's read again that letter. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 down to verse 13. Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take you a crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Last time, we looked at how Jesus identifies himself to this church, especially the one who has the keys, the keys. And we looked at two keys, and the key holder is the one who has the authority. And Jesus has the authority to open the door to heaven, the keys of salvation, and he has the authority over providence. And this is something that we need to grasp because it's ultimately the most encouraging of truths that Jesus Christ is in complete control of every detail in our life. So I just want us to continue on this theme of Jesus Christ as the one in control of providence. So he's already mentioned he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And he goes on to say to this church, see, verse 8, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Did you get that? If Jesus Christ opens a door of opportunity for you and me, no one will be able to withstand him. Isn't that encouraging? Now, let me just give you a few other verses uh, that will just explain this a bit more. Colossians chapter 4. This is not John, but the great apostle Paul. Colossians 4, 
verse 3, he's asking the church in Colossae to pray also for us that God would open to us a door. A door for what? For the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So that's what we mean by a door of opportunity, a door for the gospel. Haven't we experienced that in terms of the school's work? It's a door that I believe the Lord has opened and how blessed we are to be able to make use of that. And then in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, again the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says in verse 8, I will stay, tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, you would have thought Paul, using his sanctified common sense, would have gone to Corinth because there were big problems in Corinth that needed sorting out. But Paul is more spiritual than that. Paul says, no, I can't come to you at the moment. Why, Paul? For a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So Paul had the spiritual discernment to realize that the Lord had opened a door of ministry in Ephesus. And he stayed in Ephesus for a couple of years, didn't he? Teaching in the school of Tyrannus. And that is something we need to develop, that discernment to know when the Lord is opening a door. And then one more verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Verse 12, verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. Isn't that an interesting way of thinking? Haven't we become too worldly in our view of uh, taking uh, the gospel out and ministering to the Lord? Uh, the Apostle Paul and John and other believers throughout the ages they walked with the Lord and they would go where he would send them. Uh, I'm reminded here from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, how Paul and Silas on a missionary trip, their heart's desire, and rightly so, was to send uh, missionaries, including themselves, all around Asia Minor. They wanted to preach the gospel all around Western Turkey. But what happened in Acts chapter 16? We're told God shut the door on that, even though it seemed a good plan. And instead, God opened another door. And we know what door that was, a door to preach the gospel in Europe. So we must be sensitive, not just ministers and missionaries, but all of us, to God closing certain doors and opening other doors. Uh, let me quote from Hendrickson. He's got an excellent commentary on Revelation. The open door means, first, a wonderful opportunity to preach the gospel, and secondly, the operation of the Holy Spirit, creating willing ears to listen and eager hearts to hear it. We know, don't we, when God has given an opportunity, I think it was Fiona, you who mentioned divine appointments. Isn't the Christian life thrilling? It's not about us uh, kind of 
going through life, trying to find the best way. It's about us looking to the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, and he giving us all sorts of opportunities. Now then, let's look at this uh, in terms of the church at Philadelphia and in terms of our church. It's a word of encouragement I've got tonight. There's a book that's just come out. I'm not sure whether to recommend it in my summer's pastor's letter. And this book talks about giving shots of encouragement, like shots of adrenaline, shots of encouragement. Doesn't the church today need shots of encouragement? Now then, I've got two encouragements here regarding uh, this open door, this open door. Jesus had set an open door before the congregation at Philadelphia. He set an open door before us as a congregation, before us as individuals. Our times are in his hands. Now, let me give you two encouragements. And they're from the negative to the positive. You might be thinking this evening, no way. Pastor, you're not talking about my life here. (laughs) There's no way that Christ is setting before me such open doors. I'm not that spiritual. Hang on. I want to encourage you this evening by talking about two seeming obstacles that are actually no obstacles at all to Christ opening a door. These were the obstacles for Philadelphia, and I think they're the obstacles for us as well. The first obstacle that's stood in their way was weakness. They were an utterly weak congregation. Look at how Jesus puts it. Um, Revelation 3, verse 8. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. What kind of congregation is this then? For you have a little strength. That's the kind of congregation it was. It was weak. Now then, in what sense was it weak? Um, Joel Beakey, in his study Bible, he puts it like this. Philadelphia were weak but faithful. And she receives nothing but encouragement from Jesus Christ. What would you rather have? Strong but unfaithful. Or weak and faithful. Give me that any time. Now, how was the Church of Philadelphia weak? And how can we learn from their situation as well? And be encouraged because it's no hindrance to Jesus opening a door. The first way they were weak was they were small in number. That's one meaning of a little strength. They were only a few believers. Small group. Is that an obstacle to Jesus Christ doing something? Of course it isn't. I think it was last time I mentioned in my first year in Aberystwyth, the Christian Union was small. But God worked. We saw a few conversions. By the second year, because of that, we were bigger 
but there were less opportunities. We were probably trusting too much in ourselves. We know, don't we, William Carey's motto, I think it's Carey, one with God is in the majority. One with God is in the majority. 1 Samuel 14, 6. It is no hindrance to the Lord to save by many or by few. How encouraging that is. God does not need a large congregation in order that many people will be saved. God wants faithful hearts. There's a hymn which puts it like this. Lord, we are few. I know we are blessed with a good number here, but relatively speaking, we are few. There's going to be something on later tonight in Wembley. We are few, aren't we? Compared to the crowd that will be in Wembley Stadium. Lord, we are few. What was true of Philadelphia? What's true of us? But thou art near, you are with us. Nor short thine arm, nor death thine ear. Oh, rend, break the heavens. Come quickly down and make a thousand hearts thine own. The church in Philadelphia, even though she was small, that was no obstacle to God mightily using her. I'm being reminded here of the church on the day of Pentecost. Uh, people huddled together in an upper room. How come did that group of people in a generation turn the Roman world upside down? It was God being with them. God the Holy Spirit empowering these few people. Another example of uh, weakness in Philadelphia, I think, was their ordinariness, their ordinariness. We don't read of many gifts in this church. She wasn't a famous church like the one at Corinth. There weren't that many masters or teachers in Philadelphia. They were mostly learners or disciples. Was it Robert Murray McShane who said, it's not great gifts, but great graces that God uses. Not great gifts, but great graces that God uses. John Knox, who was a very gifted man, used of God in the Reformation in Scotland. I still think Scotland uh, feels something of the influence of Knox. John Knox said of that move of the Spirit, it was ordinary men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that encouraging? Our ordinariness is no obstacle to Jesus Christ opening a door of opportunity. I'm sometimes afraid of gifts, you know. An eloquent preacher can get in the way of the Lord speaking through him. 
a person who is gifted at organizing things can go ahead of the spirits. We're to keep in step with the spirits. It's not just in the ministry, but it's in every part of working for Christ. Lord, let them not see, not see the channel, but see only him. So it was a small church. That's how she was weak, an ordinary church. And she lacked resources. They go together, don't they? If you've got a small number of people and if they're ordinary people, and also uh, they've been thrown out of the synagogue, for you have a little strength. And then there's mention in verse 9 of the synagogue of Satan. That was the synagogue in Philadelphia. It was a very influential synagogue. And uh, we are told that these believers in the church in Philadelphia, they were Jews. They were members of the synagogue. And then they heard the gospel and they were converted. And as a result of that, they were thrown out of the synagogue. And as we learned last time, what happened to them was that they lost their influence in society. The door of the synagogue was shut to them. Any influence was shut to them. And they felt a small dispirited group and Jesus Christ is saying it doesn't matter the door to the synagogue may be shut but the most important doors are going to be those that I'm going to open for you and that's all that matters and so these small ordinary believers were lacking in resources or in human resources I should say they wouldn't have had their own building. They wouldn't have had much money. They, they wouldn't have been able to um, hobnob with the great and the good in society. How were they ever going to have those doors of opportunity? Ah, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was going to do it. Now let us not dismiss resources let us not be ungrateful for buildings, for money, for all those things. But let us not put our trust in them. You may wonder why we had our reading uh, from the feeding of the 5,000. This is why the disciples didn't have much resources, did they? When Jesus asked them to feed the people. They explained to the Saviour, uh, the crowd is here and it's evening and they have got nothing to eat. And Jesus said to them, you sort it out. And the disciples said, we can't, we haven't got anything, all we've got. I think they found a young lad and all he had was five loaves and two fishes. That's all they had. But this is the key, what they had the meagre resources that they had, they brought to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ blessed those five loaves and two fishes. And as Jesus Christ blessed those meagre resources, they multiplied and multiplied, and a miracle took place. And it's a bit like that with the church. My friend, you bring your weakness to Jesus Christ. You bring your lack of resources to Jesus Christ. You bring your ordinariness to Jesus Christ and he can transform that and he can use that and it's not you that is doing things. It's him working through you. 
I get so much encouragement from the fact that this church experienced a visitation of the Savior when our previous pastor was laid in hospital. God working in human weakness. The power of God in human weakness. Isn't that encouraging? Not just for us preachers, but for all of us. When you feel, I'm not good enough to do this for Christ. I'm not strong enough. Good. Bring it to him like the five loaves and two fishes and let him transform it. Wasn't that a grand hymn we sang? When we have exhausted our store of endurance, I think that's what happened to Mr. Hyam before he was laid aside. Uh, he said himself, did he not? He travelled round the city in his little car. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, thank God our Father's full giving has only begun. Uh, Douglas Kelly, this is how he puts it, our strength is small, but Jesus says we are not anxiously to worry about it. You have little strength. Use what little you have, and I am going to supernaturally multiply it by opening the right doors. Praise God, we've got such a saviour. Our weakness, however it shows itself, is no obstacle to Jesus. And then, secondly, opposition, opposition. This is no hindrance to Jesus Christ opening the door. Actually, when Jesus does open a door of utterance to the gospel, we can expect opposition. If there's no opposition, it means the devil isn't worried. If we don't meet Satan at all, it means we're walking in the same direction as him. Now, what was the opposition in Philadelphia. It's in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. The opposition didn't come at first from the Romans. It was going to come eventually from that source. The opposition here was coming from the religious world, from the synagogue, from the Jews. How did they do it? They threw out the Christians. What had happened to these Jews who had believed in Jesus Christ? They had believed in the Messiah. They were Jews indeed. But the leaders in the synagogue who professed to be Jews weren't really Jews because they were turning their backs on their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they excommunicated those who had come to believe in him. Religious opposition. Where did the opposition come from? To Jesus' earthly ministry. It very rarely came from the Gentiles. It came from the religious leaders of the day. The scribes and the Pharisees. But this is where we're getting to. Jesus called the synagogue in Philadelphia 
the synagogue of Satan. So it wasn't the religious people who were behind the persecution. They were pawns. It was none other than the devil himself. The devil using the devil using the scribes and Pharisees. The devil using the leaders of the synagogue here. And in the end, this is the opposition. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Not people. We don't wrestle against people. But principalities and powers and spiritual darkness in high places. And when it comes to religious people persecuting, what's the nub of it? I think it's something to do with Satan being the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. Let me read Warren Wearsby in his comments here. False accusation. This is the way the unbelieving Jews often attacked Paul. Satan is the accuser and he even uses religious people to assist him. Think of the old liberals uh, who were against the gospel when we came out to the denomination. It is not easy to witness for Christ when the leading people, the leading religious people in the community are speaking lies about you. Did any of you hear Richard Wernbrandt at all? Did you hear him? He was a Romanian pastor. He went to prison, didn't he, for Jesus Christ? Well, according to Richard Wernbrandt, the communists persecuted the Christians in Romania in this way. Uh, this, this is what he said. The most effective way for the government to kill off, say, a pastor or another Christian was to arrest that person and then spread a false rumor among the village that he was a vile sex offender. So when they released the believer again, the mob would do the rest. Isn't that frightening? Opposition. Jesus says, don't worry. It's no hindrance to me. Take encouragement. If as Christians you're being opposed, because it means the gospel is going out and the devil doesn't like it. Expect in the spiritual battle Satan to stir up persecution. Um, here's Doug, sorry for reading so many commentators, but they, they are spot on. Douglas Kelly, don't worry about the situation you may be up against. I have the keys, says Jesus. Uh, think of uh, people who wear a bunch of keys on their belts. Jesus is the high priest with the golden belt and he's got the keys and I know how to use them. At the right time, I will open the doors because you have been faithful and true. Stick to my gospel for I'm going to get you through all kinds of trials. I'm going to get you through. In a strange way, the church grows when she's most persecuted. One of the places 
I'm longing to visit after lockdown is Rome. I've never been to Rome. I long to be able to stand in the middle of the Colosseum in Rome and just pick up the dust there. Because there's a saying, isn't there? That that dust is uh, Christian dust. It was the martyrs uh, shedding their blood. That was the seed from which the church grew. I've already mentioned Romanian Christians persecuted in the 70s and 80s. Did the church uh, shrink in those times? It didn't. It grew. It grew. The same could be said of China. So, as I'm coming to a conclusion, at some point we're all going to suffer some sort of opposition as Christians. And we should take great encouragement. This is not an obstacle to Jesus Christ opening a door of opportunity. Indeed, doesn't he say the opposites? What does Jesus Christ say about persecution? Uh, When Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones started in Sandfields, there were many people who did not believe the gospel, right? There were a number of religious people who did not believe the Bible. And they were opposing him and other Christians. So what Mrs. Lloyd-Jones did, this is a shot of adrenaline in terms of encouragement. She put up in his study a verse. And these were the words... Blessed. Do you know what that word means? Markarios. Happy, happy are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. What do you do? Do you put your head in your hands and say, oh no, I'm being persecuted? Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Weakness was no obstacle to Jesus Christ opening a door of opportunity. Neither was opposition. If Jesus Christ has set before you an open door, no one No one can shut it. Do you know what this makes the church? Even a small, uh, ordinary church like Philadelphia, it makes that church powerful, doesn't it? A force for good. I'm sure Philadelphia was the kind of church that loved people into the kingdom. If you've got people who are rejoicing when they're being opposed, I don't think you've got much uh, uh, hope of stopping them. What does Philadelphia mean? Do you know what Philadelphia means? Of course you know what Philadelphia means. City of brotherly love. When the church is encouraged in her Christ because nothing is a hindrance to him from carrying out his purposes, not even opposition. If he can turn even persecution around, 
for our benefits, then aren't you going to have a Philadelphia in every Christian congregation, a city of brotherly love? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we here became more and more like Philadelphia, that we wouldn't just be a church that preaches the gospel or uh, tells people uh, the gospel, but that the whole culture of our church would be the love of Christ, the gospel. Uh, I'm being asked by Dr. Paul Tench, the editor of our magazine, to recommend books for the summer. Well, this is one book I will be recommending. The gospel, how the church portrays the beauty of Jesus Christ. I will finish by just reading a quotation from this. This is an open door to any community, I think. How wonderful it is. May we pray this for ourselves. How wonderful it is to come every Sunday into a liberating church. All week long, we swim in an ocean of judgment and negativity. Then on Sunday, we walk into a new kind of community, Philadelphia, a community of brotherly love, where we discover an environment of grace in Christ. It's so refreshing. Sinners like us can breathe again. It's as if God simply changes everyone's topic of conversation from what's wrong with us, which is plenty, to what's right with Christ, which is endless. He replaces our negativity, finger-pointing, and self-hatred with the good news of his grace to the undeserving. Oh, my friends, we love this gospel of grace, don't we? We love to tell people about it. But may it permeate us so that we become, in Heath, a Philadelphia of a church. And we may know doors of opportunity to the gospel that Jesus himself will open. And no one, nothing will hinder for his namesake.